0: And that text always, it doesn't just reference the world of the text. Once it's read, it, it's speaking into the world of the reader. And this is where um, the plurality of meaning uh, begins. At, at that point, of course, the first uh, hand that goes up in the classroom is, well, doesn't that mean anything goes? Well, no, it it doesn't mean anything goes. It just means that a lot of things can be valid interpretations. Um, The interesting thing about that, while that feels scary, evangelicals have been doing this in Sunday school and in in Bible study groups for, you know, generations. Um, We've all had the experience, if you've been in church uh, or Sunday school or just a Bible study, you know, you read a text and you go around the room What do you think it means? And everybody just existentially says, well, this is what it says to me, right?
1: to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host. And this is episode number 148. And today we get to have a conversation with someone who made a very big impact on me uh, when I was younger, back in my uh, seminary days for my master's degree, um, Professor Dr. Stephen Bailey. And uh, Stephen Bailey was a professor for a few classes. Um, as we'll talk about in the, in the episode. But the one that's most memorable for me that had the biggest impact on me uh, is a class called hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for like how to read, think about, study, understand the Bible. And so I brought Dr. Bailey on today to talk to us about the Bible, um, how he has come to read the Bible, uh, different thinkers who have influenced him, Uh, what the Bible is, all the different things. The episode is called uh, Dr. Stephen Bailey Taught Me How to Read the Bible. And uh, in many cases, that's true because uh, I got to his class and he uh, taught me some earth-shattering things coming out of a very strict, conservative, evangelical upbringing. Uh, He brought in some different nuances to the text and uh, definitely rocked my world and uh, a lot of other people's world as well. Uh, and I love him. Uh, he's, like I said, had a big impact on me. And uh, we've recently reconnected, which is pretty cool. Uh, and uh, we kind of went our separate ways for a while. And uh, Sean, Sean, who was on the podcast last week, Sean Guerin, uh he also was in seminary. And he had Dr. Bailey as a professor And I was talking to Sean a while ago. He's like, oh, Dr. Bailey, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, whatever happened to Dr. Bailey? And so we were talking about him and just the influence he had on both of us. And uh, I was like, I got to reconnect with him so I can bring him on the show uh, to talk about some things. And so uh, we're going to talk about all the things uh, here today in just a little bit. Uh, A couple things first. Uh, Number one, Patreon and buymeacoffee.com. If you'd like to support the show... Uh, financially, those are two ways to do so. Patreon is a tier based program where you give a little bit every month and you get a kind of re- a reward in return, whether it's a, a vlog episode every week, a uh, book in the mail, different things like that. So I'll put the link to it in the show notes. Uh, buy me a coffee, similar but different. Uh, you can support the show with a one time contribution. So if you don't want to do the whole monthly gig, I totally get it. How many monthly things do you have (laughs) coming out of your checking account between Hulu and Netflix and the Disney app and ESPN and Microsoft and all different sorts of things? Uh, Sometimes one more uh, monthly payment is not what you want to do, so I totally get it. Uh, There's also the Heretic Shop if you want to buy a T-shirt, hoodie. It's another great way to support the show. Uh, Wear it on your back loud and proud, <laughs> as they say. Uh, special music today is from my friend Derek Webb. Uh, Derek Webb used to be uh, in a very prominent Christian band back in the day, probably when I was in seminary, right around those, those years of, of my life, Bible college. Uh, if you look him up on the webs, on the Googles, uh, you will definitely find him, Derek Webb. But now he's doing his own thing. Uh, he's making his own music, uh, living his own life, and uh, he's making a big big difference, I think, in the world. And his music uh, speaks loudly and clearly. So head over to Spotify, Apple Music, uh, check him out, Derek Webb, listen to his music, uh, pass it around, leave him some feedback, look him up on Facebook. He's there. He's a real live person. And you can go and interact with him in various different places. So all of that to say, my friends, uh, this is episode number 148. And it's my conversation with Dr. Stephen Bailey who taught me to read the Bible. Let's roll the tape. everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am super excited because today we're sitting down with my friend, Dr. Stephen Bailey, who was actually my professor in seminary for a bunch of classes. The most memorable for me being uh, hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for how to read or interpret the Bible. But Dr. Bailey, uh, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to reconnect with you.
0: Thank you, Glenn. I'm so glad to be here with you today.
1: Thanks. So before we get too far into our chat, I have a lot of questions for you. So I was going to try to contain myself, but maybe before we start, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and who are you? What do you do? Some of the highlights of your journey these days?
0: Yeah, thank you. I, you know, I grew up a pastor's kid in the Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, a kind of mission-oriented evangelical denomination that grew up in the holiness movement. Um, I'm really not working with the CMA anymore, but that, uh, relationship has pretty much, uh, shaped a lot of my, uh, my growing up years, my education, uh, my missionary experience, Mm -hmm. uh, my role as a, uh, a professor of missiology and near cultural studies. Um, yeah, so I, my wife Jackie and I, we were um, in Southeast Asia for 17 years, and uh, then I began teaching, as you know, at Alliance Theological Seminary. And then uh, after 10 years, moved out to the West Coast and taught at Simpson University and uh, just finished up there this past summer. So now I'm, I'm doing a little part-time teaching. I'm uh, reading and writing and enjoying my granddaughter.
1: Love it. And what kind of stuff are you reading and writing these days?
0: Well, um, you know, um, in the days you and I were in the classroom, I I got to teach uh, biblical hermeneutics. And Mm. and I've often been asked by my peers, you know, why is a missiologist reading so much in hermeneutics? (laughs) And uh, really, for me, biblical interpretation... uh, brings to us a set of problems that are not that different or far from the problems of cross-cultural communication and contextual theology. And Mm. in Southeast Asia, of course, the the main context I was dealing with there was uh, Theravada Buddhism. And anyone who looks at um, Southeast Asia will quickly realize that in the four main Theravada Buddhist Uh, countries on the mainland Southeast Asia, only about 1% of uh, people with a Buddhist background there have ever uh, become Christians. Mm. And yet missionaries have been there working at it, Catholic and Protestants for well over 400 years. So Mm. uh, I'm quite fascinated by this, uh, on the one hand, warm embrace that we always feel from uh, our Buddhist brothers and sisters there. And yet their lack of interest in the gospel that we have tried to share there. So that's uh, been a big focus uh, of my reading and research for many years. And uh, it's led me into some interfaith dialogue with Buddhists, but also other minority religions in that region.
1: I love that. I think that's one of the things I always valued about um, the classes I took with you was it wasn't like either or. Christian or Buddhist, but you always you always showed kind of the bridge that could be built there and the friendships that could be had, and I I always appreciated that.
0: You know, I have a strong faith uh, in the idea that I learned way back uh, in a philosophy class at Wheaton College that uh, all truth is God's truth. Yeah. Probably should learn that in a theological course, but uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I actually learned it in a philosophy course. <laughs> And uh, of course, that speaks to the whole idea of general revelation and that uh, God is at work in revealing himself in creation and in the world uh, everywhere. And so I have uh, had the experience of learning from Buddhist people uh, about my own faith and Mm. about God. And that has quite an impact, I think, on you as a Christian, at least it, it has had of that kind of an impact on me.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I recently read um, a book by uh, Barbara Brown Taylor called Holy Envy. And she talks about how she was a professor of religion at a, at a college. And so she had to take her students through all various types of religions. And she used to be an Episcopal priest. And so she went to this class to teach students about, you know, um, Hindus and Buddhists and you know, Jews and all, all different sorts of things. And she says, I I found that there was a lot of things in other religions that I really valued, but I never felt the need to like convert to another religion. But I felt like what I learned from them made me a better Christian. And she Hmm. said, like, I always, I would always go to these places during the day, but I would come home to Jesus at night and I would bring these things with me and it would just make me a better follower of Christ. Yeah. So I don't know if you remember too much of me from seminary. I was kind of the quiet, the quiet guy, (laughs) but the first class I took with you I was trying to remember the name but I, I think it was the church as a social and cultural institution does that ring a bell is that true yes it does yeah, yeah. so you had assigned uh, Brian McLaren's book a generous orthodoxy for us mm. to read and I That's remember true. I remember that sort of blew my mind because I was told that McLaren was dangerous <laughs> He's he's been on the podcast before a few times and we, we laugh about that now but um, then I also had you for hermeneutics which really shaped me in Profound Ways, a class about how to read and think about the Bible. So what I wanted to do today is kind of drill down a little bit into your thoughts about how to read the Bible and what the Bible is, because that's something that we explore a lot on the podcast. And I know from class and from our email exchange, you've mentioned a guy named Paul Ricoeur, who's had a, a big impact on your thinking. So I thought that would be a good place for us to start. Uh, so I'll just toss it out there. Who is Paul Ricoeur? Why has he impacted your thinking? And uh, what is his understanding of how to read the Bible?
0: Yeah, well, those are those big are questions. questions. So <laughs>
1: you could talk all day about that. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do my best.
0: Well, Ricourt was a 20th century French philosopher, hmm. uh, but he was a very committed Christian. He grew up in hmm. a Protestant Huguenot family in France, uh, which, you know, is predominantly has been, you know, since the Reformation. Uh, Very Catholic, and they've had a very small Protestant minority. And Recourse uh, was pretty much raised by his grandparents. Uh, And in that home, they read the scriptures every day. Mm. And he was raised in uh, a kind of in opposition to Catholicism, uh, Protestant faith. And, um, but then he becomes a philosopher, and yet he never leaves uh, his commitment to uh, Christianity. And he wrote not just a lot of philosophy, but uh, he wrote on interpreting scripture, and mm. he actually wrote some commentaries on scripture and wrote some very interesting articles on religion and religious symbols. Mm -hmm. I encountered him because I was asking a lot of questions that I think a lot of young men and women do in seminary (laughs) uh, about the nature of scripture and a professor named Dr. Tianu, who taught there at the time but uh, taught for many years at Trinity Evangelical uh, Seminary he suggested that I read Ricore. And so he introduced me to a collection of his essays a little book called Hermeneutics and the Human Sciences, hmm. which honestly was way over my head, but he and I plowed <laughs> through it with another student uh, who now um, a good friend of, of mine, Dr. Stephen Goodwin. We did a little um, directed study with him And um, while I couldn't really understand a lot of what I was reading, I knew he was pushing at issues I was really struggling with. Mm. And uh, as I have waded through Ricoeur's books over many years, and some of them, honestly, I've had to read six or seven times uh, to be sure, (laughs) I even began to understand what he was talking about. (laughs) Um, But... I think what Ricor has helped me with then and continues to help me with is to avoid the pitfalls of what we might call foundationalism. Hmm. You know, the the idea that through exegetical skill, you know, and I was raised in that, you know, even back in my college days, I was studying Greek and Hebrew and then into seminary and, uh, you know, working very hard uh, to narrow down and get to that original meaning of the author yeah right and to make Hmm. claims that um, I could know the mind of Paul and the gospel writers and so on yeah and I just something about that just didn't have the ring of truth although I at the time couldn't really give language to my concerns but then of course on the other hand as an evangelical I was also frightened by falling into radical relativism Mm -hmm. uh, in reading the scriptures. And Ricoeur, I I think Mm -hmm. most people would probably call him a postmodern philosopher, but he's certainly not a radical postmodern. And I think what is appealing about him is that while some at least postmodern thinking can lead you into a kind of uh, despair, because of the loss of meaning in life that can uh anchor uh one's sense of self yeah. or what existence is about Ricord has always uh had hope and a kind of confidence that while you don't get guarantees uh you can know things indirectly never directly but indirectly through texts mm. And this is why he was doing biblical interpretation, writing on biblical interpretation, because he was one of those philosophers of the 20th century that approached philosophy uh, through a kind of linguistic anthropology or through interpretation. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a kind of indirect way of trying to identify what is uh, real what's meaningful and, and so it, it doesn't give you you know the kind of guarantees that sometimes we seek as christians which is odd right because christians above all people are called by faith not by uh sight right. yeah. i mean that's <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's right in that's the book. kind of foundational <laughs> but <Right. laughs>
0: but then when we talk to the world we we want to tell the world we know absolutely yeah and uh, that, that, that feels good to say that, but um, well, let me just give you this kind of easy example that sure. I used to use with my students because when I got to this point, usually there were a lot of troubled faces.
1: <laughs> You're starting to get those perplexed looks yeah. out there in the audience.
0: <laughs> yeah, particularly, you know, because Record did not think that while well, he would like others say that the the author's meaning was lost to us pretty much at mm-hmm. least. yeah and and that's that's a scary thing to say out loud right um but on the other hand um when you think about it, and when I was struggling with this, I, I was in uh, Southeast Asia, and you know we didn't have email or even faxes in those days. We were mm-hmm. writing onion skin, airgrams back and forth between you know <laughs> uh, primarily my mom was the writer in the family and myself, and uh, she and I kept our letters over. Like almost 20 years. Wow. And when I look at those letters and even when I looked at them two or three years after they'd been written, let alone 20 some years, 30 now, um, I honestly am not sure what I intended to say in the, in most of those letters. Mm. Now, when, when you think about that dynamic, the distance, right, the emotional and time and even cultural dis- distance of just 20 years, Uh, think about the challenge of what we're claiming to try to know over 2000 years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is a big claim. Hmm. And I I don't think it's a necessary one. I I think we've made it because uh, the challenge of higher biblical criticism in the 19th century left us uh, looking for a way to anchor meaning Hmm. and the authority of scripture uh, but of course when you do that um if you lean too hard into that what you lose is the recognition that the bible while it did speak then it's still speaking now right that's right right and, and so when when Especially if you're part of the Pentecostal movement or (laughs) the CMA, the holiness movement, you know, you want to say that the Spirit of God is still speaking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the most fundamental things about evangelicalism before it has been kind of dragged through the mud. Uh, of our popular culture over the last few years, Mm. but um, (laughs) when it was easier to talk about evangelicalism, um, I I think one of the most fundamental things about it for me was the belief that God is still acting in history. God's not just a memory of what people said and did way back then, but this fundamental belief that God is alive and well and speaking and acting in history
1: yeah. I think you bring uh, up an interesting point too, about, I think going back a minute to what you said about the Bible and kind of being, can we really get to the original meaning of the text? And I think for myself, like I think back over my classes, I went to Nyack college and I think back over my Bible classes, theology classes, even ATS. There was always that, that sense where if you just dig enough, and yeah. you know enough Greek, you know enough Hebrew, you have enough lexicons on your shelf and enough concordances, like you can kind of get to what they really meant. And I think one of the things that over my my time since leaving ATS, doing like my own studying and my own thinking, my own evolving, I've really begun to think like, like you said, is it possible to really get to that? Because like, if you think of a letter from Paul, for instance, like we're in essence reading we're reading like his, his diary, so to speak, right? Like we're like looking over his shoulder, reading yes. a letter that he's writing and he's writing to people that have the context because they live in the context. And so there's a lot of context in the letter that he's obviously not going to put in there because the people who are living in the place he's writing to already know what's going on. So there's a whole lot that he doesn't have to tell them because they already know it. Whereas you and I, when we read over his shoulder, we have no idea <laughs> what kind of context he's writing to. So I think like all of those kinds of questions have really begun to surface in my mind over the last couple of years. So I just wanted to interject that into your into your thinking.
0: Yes, yeah. I, I think uh, the longer you work in exegesis, uh, unless you're, you know, really a scholar, I think if you're a scholar, maybe you have more confidence. But sure. for most of us, you feel like, well, I've been at this for years and I'm still not that good at it. So do I really... <laughs> do I really have the ability to hear what God wants to say in this text? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I have to believe that anybody, seminary student or not, can hear God speak in the text. Hmm. So, so where does that leave us? Well, Ricor thought we should study the text, but he believed that the text has a world of its own that, in some ways, is independent of Paul. At least uh. it survives, right? Uh, Paul's initial in- intention may not have survived, but the text does. Mm-hmm. And when you think of text, and of course, this has led uh, biblical interpretation into the study of narrative. And this is, I think, really the, the origins of why narrative has become such a, a popular way of thinking about the Bible, and, with, and for good reason. Mm. Um, rather than tearing down every verse word for word, um, we need to remember, and Record used to say this all the time in his writings, meaning arises at the level of a sentence, not in a word. Yeah. Uh, you never know what words mean mm. until they're used in a sentence. True. And and you really don't know what it means until you read it. Now now the first part of that tells us that meaning arises through the interplay of symbols mm. in a context. And then the third part of that is the reader always reads any sentence, biblical text or not. Uh, And that text always, it doesn't just reference the world of the text. Once it's read it, it's speaking into the world of the reader. Mm, Yeah, And this is where um, the plurality of meaning uh, begins.
2: Mm.
0: Now, at that point, of course, the first uh, hand that goes up in the classroom is, well, (laughs) doesn't that mean anything goes? Well, no, it, it doesn't mean anything goes. It just means that a lot of things can be valid interpretations. Right. Um, the interesting thing about yeah. that, while that feels scary, evangelicals have been doing this in Sunday school and in, in Bible study groups for, you know, generations. Um, we've all had the experience, if you've been in church uh, or Sunday school or just a Bible study, you know, you read a text and you go around the room what do you think it means? And everybody just existentially says, well, this is what it says to me, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Now the the fascinating part about this for me is that in these evangelical study groups is most of the time we we just allow everybody to kind of be right. Hmm. Well, I, I guess Ricor would say, and I would agree that um, a lot of them are probably valid interpretations, but not all of them, because the text has a. We we have a kind of accountability to this narrative structure of the Bible. That there are themes there, there are archetypes there. Uh, the text has to be read uh, intertextually. In other words, we we have to read. John in light of Matthew and in light of Ecclesiastes. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's a a big scope. And yet it does create a kind of world of the text that we have to answer to. So let me give you this analogy. Um, If you're not a baseball fan person then this might not work I
1: remember you're a Red Sox fan aren't you
0: yeah I you're right thank you Glenn you used to put those uh
1: slides in the uh PowerPoint presentations at random (laughs) I'm a Yankee fan so it would always aggravate me
0: (laughs) yeah I when I came out west it wasn't fun anymore because nobody was a Yankee fan right (laughs) so I couldn't torment them with my slides of Red Sox players yeah (laughs) But yeah, for me, the most helpful way to think about this is if you think about a baseball uh, field Mm. with foul lines, there's a strange reality about baseball in that you can hit a ball and it can be fair in almost an infinite number of ways. Mm. And yet, there's a lot of balls you can hit almost equally infinite that are fouls outside those lines. So to me, this is what Ricore wants to say that um, not everything is a valid interpretation. It it has to be answerable to the narrative structure uh, and the deep themes of scripture. And yet, Mm -hmm. uh, as we stand before the text, the text can reference, can speak to us in uh, an almost infinite number of places and Mm -hmm. cultures. Mm. Um, And so there is uh, a lot of plurality in what can be a good interpretation of scripture. Mm. At least that's what Ricore would argue. And as a cross-cultural person, I I have seen this.
2: Mm.
0: I have seen Buddhists open up the scripture and and read it Hmm. in ways that um, are you know incredibly insightful and and I ask myself you know why couldn't I have seen that (laughs) well the answer is I didn't have the right place in front of the text to be able to see it right something Hmm. about their experience their background uh, connected with the narrative and illuminated the narrative of the text in ways that my own did not. And mm-hmm. of course, the other way around. So that argues for um, reading the text in community.
1: Sure. Did he call that the surplus of meaning? Am I right on that?
0: Yes. yes. Yeah. Got it. So, you know, he talked about the sense of the text or what a text said,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but he doesn't really mean the original writer. Although he did all the exegesis, uh, mm-hmm. but he's really looking at, you know, the syntax, the narrative structure, the symbols used. Uh, he came very close, and he's sometimes criticized for a kind of structuralism, a deep structuralism, mm. uh, that there were certain archetypes uh, and themes in scripture that reoccur over and again. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that's, I, th- I would fully agree with that. In fact, I've often said, because students, if you're in the exegesis mode, then, then you think your job is to come to the text uh, objectively. Well, I, I think that's the worst attempt to try to make uh, for a couple of reasons. One, nobody's really that objective. But <laughs> second, I think you, you need a certain... Bias, if you will. Hmm. And, and but here's the thing. Uh, while Rikor critiqued presuppositions like any good postmodern would, uh, like a lot of postmoderns, he thought, well, if we have presuppositions, then we sh- we better have good ones. So, what are what are the right presuppositions? Well, I think we have to allow Scripture, the world of the narrative text, there to teach us what what the right presuppositions should be. Think about Jesus uh, walking with the two disciples after the resurrection in the Gospel of Luke, if I'm not mistaken, and. and And he walks with them. And what does he do? He teaches them to reread the Torah, which they, I'm sure, knew well. But now he's teaching them to read it with different eyes, with the eyes of the Christ event. Mm -hmm. And their eyes are opened. Uh, Paul goes through the same thing, a scholar of the Torah, right? Um, A PhD in his day of the text. And yet, after he becomes a believer, he disappears for a while. Well, what mm-hmm. is he doing? I'm su- going to suggest that he's rereading the text with a different lens. Yeah. Now, seeing this narrative as uh, a text about Jesus. Now, th- there are, I think, several good mm-hmm. themes or biases to have. I think the bias of liberation, of redemption, of covenant, mm-hmm. But the, the key thing here is to choose the lenses that come right out of the narrative itself. And, and so I think, yeah, we all have presuppositions. We all have a kind of lens by which we read text, but some lenses are better than others. Some are uh, less helpful than others.
1: Yeah. I remember I was thinking back over our class and, Kind of one of the things I remember you did in class that brought this whole idea to light was something that blew my mind and I think rattled a few students' cages as well. But you did this this kind of activity where you broke us into groups of like two or three, and I remember every group was assigned a different perspective or a different uh, origin. Like you had a group of reformers, you had a group of Methodists. You had a group of just college students. You had a group of, um, I think we had like a Buddhist group, all these different people. And you gave us all the same passage of scripture. And you told us to read it, try to read it through the lens of that particular group, and then share with the class kind of what we came to, how we would, how would we do, do a Bible lesson on it or teach about it or whatever. And every group had something remarkably different that they saw in the passage because of the lens through which they were looking at it Uh, but really none of those we could say was in and of itself wrong, like to your point of the baseball field at all kind of fell within the, the foul lines (laughs) somewhere it all worked. And I remember that was so eye opening to me because I, I was, I came from that tradition where it had one meaning and it was your job to figure out what the meaning was and then tell everybody (laughs) what the meaning was if you're the pastor. And so that, I remember that really, I went home that night and I remember thinking to myself, my goodness, like. There's multiple ways to understand this based upon the perspective which I bring to the text with me.
0: I, I have done that uh, quite a few times.
1: Yeah. 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 That's really good. So, in light of Record, then, and kind of his influence on your thinking, all the stuff that you've shared, what are some of the, the biggest, like, potential uh, misinterpretations of scripture that you've come across kind of in your classroom or church? experience what are some of the maybe some of the things that you've seen that have fallen maybe outside of the foul lines maybe give us some examples of that if you have any off the top of your head
0: yeah well i guess first off i I, I certainly don't want to claim that, um, I, I don't misinterpret scripture I mean, sure. <laughs> this is part of being a Christian, right. And why yeah. community is so important. It's a community text that mm-hmm. needs to be read and debated and discussed over and over. Right. Yep.
2: Um,
0: I, I think the second thing I would say is that, um, the chief cause of misinterpret, misinterpretation, I think, is the failure to critique. Uh, well, let me put it this way, the failure to al- listen to the text in a way that the text critiques our assumptions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we often come, and I find that in most sermons that I hear in local churches, it feels very much like the text was chosen because it served the purpose of a point the pastor wants to make.
1: That doesn't happen. No way. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you
0: you don't have the sense of, okay, this is the text and now let's listen to it.
1: <laughs> sure. Sure.
0: And, and this is one of the values of using the lexicon of, the, you know, some of the more liturgical churches is, mm. uh, the church calendar tells you what you're going to read. You, you don't get to search around and say, well, which which passage will help me make this point? Right. Uh, there's a certain discipline there that I'd like. Uh so learning to let the text undo us. Mm. I, I think is a very important step, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think in, in a more specific way. Uh, it, you know, of course, I'm, re, I'm reflecting on mostly pretty conservative churches in America, and this would not be true of more mainline churches. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure they have their own misinterpretations. But I think in the evangelical church, the, uh, the issue that is overlooked the most is to see uh, how important social issues are to God. Mm. That salvation has very specific social implications for how we live with others. Yeah. And, and perhaps I'm sensitive to that because I grew up in this tradition, and I know that no, almost no matter what happens in a church service, that eventually... We're going to be asked to reflect on our personal sins and our inner life. And that is one of the best things about evangelicalism, is this discipline of looking inward and confessing our personal failures. Mm. But unfortunately, if you read every text with that in mind, you miss uh, the politics of God, Mm. the politics of the kingdom, which have nothing to do with the politics of any country that we might live in. Uh, Walter Bergman, I think, is one of the most helpful people, particularly with Old Testament texts. Um, I would encourage listeners to listen to some of his uh, lectures and um, statements about uh, the biblical text in in this light. God cares very much about um, social ethics mm. and the, the kingdom is really um, a, a world in which Jesus is Lord. There are no other lords or kings or presidents or prime ministers, and, and it's a kingdom based upon the ethic of laying your life down for the sake of others in just institutions. Now, I'm paraphrasing some something else from Paul Ricoeur there. And, and so while, yes, we need to be personally reflective and to c- confess our lives and to work towards um, a kind of righteousness inwardly, but that, that is that can never be disconnected from our social participation. Yeah. And and I see an an incredible disconnect here between what we consider personal holiness and our lack of concern for the ethics of the kingdom in society.
2: Hmm.
1: I think that's that class that took with you, the church as a social and cultural institution. That was my, I think that was my, one of my, maybe my first class in the first semester. And I remember, again, like I came from that world and that upbringing where To your point, it was all about reading the scripture through that lens of me and my relationship with God and my inner self and my sins and all that stuff is important. It has a place, but that class really began to open up my mind to the fact that this this God thing, this Jesus thing, this kingdom thing is much bigger than just me. (laughs) And it's meant to impact everyone and the, 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 the culture as a whole. And to think about like what you just said, I mean, it goes back to the call of Abraham, right? Abraham was called, Israel was called to to be a blessing, but to be a blessing to the nations, not just to themselves. So how do you deal with, how do you deal with pushback? Because I'm sure that you get some, <laughs> when you bring this stuff up to people, um, like, what does that look like for you? Because I know a lot of our listeners kind of struggle with, with that is when they're evolving in their thinking, they're kind of latching on to these ideas that you're sharing a lot of people from their current tribe or their former tribe of people uh, don't appreciate that as much as they do. And so kind of sharing these things sometimes ruffles some feathers, causes some disagreement. Uh, What is your experience with that? And like, how, how do you handle those kinds of things?
0: Well, yeah. So struggles of being, you know, having been a professor is, being, you know, when you're a teacher you're in a place of power and not everybody feels uh, safe enough, unfortunately, in a classroom to push back, mm. but thankfully there are always a few who do. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and speak for others and sure. there always should be pushback. I think mm. it's crucial that the church always be in discussion. Mm. Uh, I think the rabbinic tradition and also the Anabaptist church both have very healthy traditions of never feeling like you have to achieve a conclusion theologically, but that the church or the synagogue community needs to continue to discuss um, and talk to each other about the meaning of scripture. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think pushback is crucial to the health of any church. And I've always warned pastors, uh, often people preparing to be pastors, <laughs> um, don't shut down people who push back. No. God's put them there for your own well being mm. to make us think again. I mean, it's very possible. And I think. All of us need to be able to say this out loud. We might have it all wrong,
1: right? That's right. You know
0: that there are no guarantees. Yep. <laughs> nope. uh, but we can have confidence, and I think we get confidence by you know interacting with each other and trying to correct ourselves and, and move forward um, together as a community. But of course, that takes. Um, I think we, we we desperately need a kind of um, hospitality to disagreement. Mm. Uh, we need to be able to welcome uh, conversation and particularly conversations that um, challenge who we are and what we believe and what we think. This is basic to the Christian life.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: And... Um, yeah, to uh, to have the attitude that God has something to say to us, not only in the text,
2: mm.
0: but um, outside the church through believers and non-believers. That if we're listening and we're open to the Spirit of God, some of the more difficult um, people in our lives can can be the most helpful to us. Yeah. Students who have pushed Mm -hmm. back on me have really helped me articulate what I think better.
1: Hmm. I was talking to uh, Amy Jill Levine on the podcast not that long ago, and she was talking about how, you know, when you see Jesus quote arguing with people in the Bible, the Pharisees and stuff like that, like that was just what was built into the tradition was that going back and forth and, debating about the text and pushing back on different ideas and the more that people did that the more they came to better understand their own ideas and be able to explain it like she said if you if there's no pushback or if there's no disagreement um, how are you ever going to be able to formulate your idea as to why you really believe what it is that you believe and so I think to your point having that hospitality almost of disagreement and creating space for it and welcoming that i think is key because we often see it as the enemy like we don't want to have disagreement we want everybody to get along everybody to agree but i think that if you do that you know what kind of what kind of understanding are you really building
0: yes yeah and i think particularly in the times we live in uh there's a lot of fear yeah fear connected to a loss of identity and i i think we need to be compassionate with one another about yeah yeah Um, But I think on the other hand, if all truth belongs to God, if he's the creator of all things, Christians above all other people need to be uh, almost recklessly courageous in their Mm -hmm. pursuit of truth we can trust God, even when we get led into things that seem, wow, a lot different than I thought. Can God really be like this? And all these other things that we experience in our journeys, uh, we have to trust the voice of the Good Shepherd. That's right.
1: I think that's what I appreciate so much about having had the opportunity to do this podcast, that I, I get to talk to so many different people with so many different ideas and sometimes I'll wade into a conversation and I'm like, Oh man, I don't feel very comfortable. <laughs> then I realize, you know, like the spirit is leading into this place and whatever truth is going to be here. Like I said, all truth is God's truth. And so let's uncover it. Let's discover it. Yeah. 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 So last question for you, cause we're getting near the end of our time. Yeah. Uh, but you've, you've, you've dealt with a lot of students in your life and you've been in the classroom a lot. What is your, your best advice to somebody who finds themselves in this place where maybe they're, they're, their heart is kind of in the world of Paul Ricoeur? They're kind of ready to take that step into that kind of thinking, but their brain is still lagging behind in terms of the way that they were brought up, the way that they were raised to read the text and think about it as having just one particular meaning. What's your advice to that person as they continue to grow and evolve in their understanding of the, of the text? Um, I think that if
0: you find that the interpreters of scripture are people of grace and love and compassion, and they're people who keep their promises, um, some of the scariness disappears. Yeah. Because no matter what the text says, if it doesn't produce the fruits of the spirit, um, because of course the last part of any good interpretation of scripture is obedience. Mm. Right. Yep. <laughs> and um, in the end, I think um, it's about trust. And while we certainly learn to trust God we also need to be able to trust each other, but um, don't we, we? shouldn't be just following people because they sound smart or they have good arguments. We should also be following people because they're good people. And I, I, I think that um, I don't think God's gonna. I don't think God's gonna let us um, get lost in the pursuit of His voice. I just don't think God's going to let that happen. So, you know, I, I think we can trust uh, God to guide us in this journey. And if you get a little lost, I mean, sometimes I have worked with students that are so open to the surplus of meaning, I kind of, you know, I get a little scared. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, well, that's creative. I'm not sure that has anything to do with the text at right. all. <laughs> at least you have to show me. Right. You know, so um, sometimes, yeah, you get a little excited in, about interpreting in front of the text so much that you lose sight of the, the narrative itself. Yeah. I mean, it preaches well and it's creative, but it, is it really the story of God uh, in the text, you know? Sure. So, but see, that's okay. I I would rather make those mistakes uh, than than try to, uh, I think that trying to, seeing the text as having one interpretation that is passed on generation to generation is more of a heresy and more of a problem Mm. for the kingdom than making the other mistake. Uh, Simply because, When If you really are preaching a, a singular interpretation of the text, that text is dead. It's not speaking to anybody alive now. Right. It really has very little to say. Hmm. Uh, that text has to have something to say about racial um, justice issues, about capitalism, about immigration, about places w- where we are you know, working against each other and debating and feeling emotional. Mm. Uh, And the only way the text is going to speak to us about these crucial issues is if we really study it well, know the scriptures, know the narrative, know the themes of God, uh, but also are are very alive to um, and listening yeah. To how God is speaking uh, that same message into the places we live. That's right. And, and I think we might make some mistakes in doing that, but I don't think they're going to be mistakes that lead people away from God. I really yeah. don't.
1: That's so good. Well, Dr. Billy, as I expected, this was a fantastic conversation, uh, but we are just about out of time. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and uh, maybe we can do this again sometime soon. I really enjoyed it.
0: My pleasure, Glenn. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much.
1: And uh, real quick, are you online anywhere that people can go and find you and any of your work <laughs> anywhere? <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm kind of a dinosaur. I don't really have a social media presence, but I am part of <laughs> LinkedIn.com. You can find me there.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. I'll, put, I'll find your profile and I'll put that in the uh, show notes for people to go and find you.
0: Great. That would be fine.
1: Awesome. Well, I'll talk to you soon.
0: All right. Thank you so much.